everybody. Hope you've been enjoying our podcast so far. If you really like it, we'd love for you to go give us a review on iTunes or whatever streaming service you're using. And uh, we'd love for you to share it with with friends, family members, co-workers, anybody that you know that needs to hear the hope of Jesus Christ. And today we will be hearing a uh, story of hope from our own co-host, Roger Bose. And many of you already know, but uh, Roger has written a book called Soberholic, 12 Steps Later, that can be purchased on Amazon. And so uh, go pick that up and uh, share it w- with somebody or read it for yourself. It's a great story. And we're going to hear that some of that story right here, right now. How are you doing, Roger? I am doing well, other than trying to get over some sickness, or I guess pollen is the thing I'm really trying to get over, a little stuffy, but uh, I think I'm going to make it. Uh, I've been a lot worse, and so today um, I'm excited about getting to share a little bit about my story with you. Well, Roger, I know it seems like forever ago when when your story started, and I know that you know sometimes when you get further along in recovery, it's easy to forget you know, how it all started, and it's easy to forget what it was like uh, with all that pain and and struggling that that you were doing in the beginning, but it seems like your story from reading the book started at a very young age um, with a tragedy. Um, Just start us off there and tell us what it was like. It's funny that you say a lot of that because um, it's been 15 years now since I've been sober, or right at it, and um, I've told people before that as I share my testimony now, it's almost like I'm talking about someone else mm. because uh, those those stories aren't as fresh as they used to be. Right. And my my story really began there at birth, and you know that's usually like when you sit back in your seat and go, "Wow, this is going to be a, a really long <laughs> podcast," but it's really not. But that is where my problems began because when I was born, I had a twin brother that died. Mm. And of course, I didn't know that when right. I was born. But as I got older, I realized that um, he had passed away. You know, my family had told me those things, and it spurred something to me. And what it spurred was a resentment. Mm. It was my first resentment against God. And I guess that's really the first resentment I ever remember having, period, was mm. against God. And I held on to that hate and that anger because if God loved me like people told me he did, why would he have killed my brother? Mm. And that kind of fueled a lot of my life. As I look back at my childhood, it was, you know, I can't say, I've heard a lot of testimonies like you have, right? Mm -hmm. And I've heard a lot of testimonies where people were beaten and molested and abused. And I can't say that in my testimony. That's not what happened to me. I I had two great loving parents uh, that did everything they could to, to teach me good morals and values. And I think they did a good job at that. But what we were were kind of like holiday Christians, you know. Mm-hmm. We we found ourselves in church on Easter and maybe Christmas, right? Doing the yeah. doing doing the holiday thing, oh, yeah. and it was almost to please my mama at times. Now I've talked to my mom more, and she says that we went a lot more than what <laughs> I remember, but I don't remember that. Yeah. yeah, I do remember my grandma taking me probably more than my parents, um, but that's just what I remember as a kid. Yeah. While I was there at church, I do remember this, though. They taught me a few things. They taught me, one, that that Jesus loved me, which I thought was a lie because back to my brother again, if if he loved me, then why would he take the person who was close to me? Right. 
And the second thing that I learned from all these teachers and preachers was that I just need to say this prayer. And if I could get this prayer out of my mouth before I died, then I could make it to heaven. Um, it was almost a way of fire insurance, if, if you will. Yeah. But if, it was all about the prayer. It really had nothing about the heart, just the prayer. And that's not what they were teaching me then, but that's what I heard. And that's two different things, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. So, you know, being the only child, since my brother had passed away, I found this one thing, and it was something I've held on to, I guess even up till today, is I always wanted to be the center of attention. Uh, maybe it's the uh, the only child syndrome or, or whatever, but I always needed attention from people. And my parents really gave it to me because they because of a lot of diff- difficulties they had with pregnancy, I was kind of really a miracle baby in, in a lot of ways. They didn't really expect to have kids. And so they gave me all the attention I could ever dream of, but it still wasn't enough. And in school, um, it was the same type of thing. I wanted everybody to look at me. I was the class clown. Uh, no. Yeah, it does I can't show, see right? it. And so I, yeah, I just wanted everybody to, to think about me and, and, and focus on me. And that kind of got me into different mixes that I really shouldn't be in, uh, mixes of groups. And even in, in eighth grade, as bad as this sounds, I, I got caught with a pistol at school. And this was way before Columbine and all wow, of those right, things. Um, yeah. It was viewed at completely different. In fact, to be completely truthful, I don't want to mislead our listeners, I didn't get caught with the, the pistol at school. I was going to trade a guy at school a pistol. He had his pistol at school, and mine was at home. <laughs> Wait, that's not any better. <laughs> it's, it's not better, but um, you know, we were going to do it. And the crazy thing was is at that age, you know, the serial numbers had been grinded off the side of it. <laughs> I don't really know what happened. I won it in a poker bet <laughs> in eighth grade. Eighth grade. Um, but I, I got it. I knew I couldn't get caught with it. But I was going to trade up for a better gun and some marijuana that was going to come with it. I was a businessman even yeah. in eighth grade. It was all about trying to figure out how to make more out of what I had. Yeah. I've never been happy with what I've got. <laughs> uh, but anyways, the other guy got caught at school with a gun, and he ratted me out. Imagine that, at eighth grade, p- people not being honest and truthful uh, with keeping their word of silence, you know. But um, anyways, they came and got the pistol from the house, and uh, I think I got suspension over that, maybe one or two days. It was no really big deal. I mean, it, as big as it should have been, looking right. the way yeah. things are today. And But all of that was for intention. I, I wanted to have a gun in eighth grade, not because I feared for my life. We lived in a, a blue-collar neighborhood and middle-class neighborhood. I didn't need it for protection. I just wanted people to think I was cool because I wanted you to think about me. Well, most of that was my life. And needless to say, with that type of behavior, I had a lot of different arrests for different things. And many of those dealt with drugs or alcohol because... Early on, I, I don't remember my first drug or my first drink. Um, I do know that drinking came first for me, and it was almost a way to experience what other kids older than me was doing. And I remember the first time I drank, it was just so calming for me, and it allowed me to be someone that I wasn't. And that was the thing I felt like I'd been looking for my whole life. And that led me to doing more and more and more. The same pattern I was talking about a minute ago. I just never, I mean, never been happy with just being me. Right. And so um, those came into a lot of arrest. And on one of these many arrests, um, it was for, I forget, it had something to do with pills at that time. 
and it was a felony offense. And the judge made a deal with me. He said, look, if you will go into the military, we'll drop the charges. And so that kind of began my whole military career. It wasn't for God and country and, yeah. and the love <laughs> of everybody else. It was because I didn't want to go to prison. Yeah. Right? I mean, I just, I didn't like me and that much to bunk up with them. You know? <laughs> did and, you, did you at that point maybe think that maybe I have a problem no. <laughs> okay. We're a long way away from no, that. No, we're this not point. even in the, in the vicinity of having a problem then. And I'd even been to rehab at that point. Okay. Uh, one time. And, but it was because my parents thought I maybe had a problem with doing a few things. I remember choking my dad out because they were trying to make me go and my uncle kicking me in the chest to get me off of him. But no, I didn't have a problem at all. <laughs> I mean, who would have a problem doing those sort of things to their parents? It was insanity in my life. Right. But I really, I didn't see the problem. Everybody else had begun to see the problem, but not me. But that began my career in the military. And um, it was actually kind of a good thing. I had gotten out of high school. I'd actually dropped out of high school and then went back the following year to actually graduate, which was a blessing. Uh, I kind of got it together a little bit. That was right, right around the rehab time, but it didn't last long. I, I, I reverted back to those old friends, and you know, I can't say my friends were the only reason I did drugs. That's who I chose to be with. But um, eventually, we ended up in the military, and I got shipped to Fort Benning, Georgia, which is only three hours down the street here from us here in Alabama. Well, we're right outside of Birmingham here. And it was kind of cool in a lot of ways. Um, I wanted the adventure of traveling, but I wanted the security of being home because I was terrified to be on my own. I'd always been a mama's boy. Now, at that age, I would have never told you I was a mama's boy, (laughs) but I was. I was terrified to be on my own. I didn't even know how to wash my own clothes, and I was in the military. (laughs) I I don't think I could even cook a meal, maybe (laughs) maybe boil an egg at the best, but um, I I was just very immature for my age. And I made it to the military, and it actually came easy. You've heard the horror stories of military about how they drill you and all the physical training and all that. The physical training was probably the hardest part for me because when you're doing drugs, physical training is not really part of your regiment. Um, no, uh, no, <laughs> trying to get no better. it's not. Uh, so I, I, I excelled in the military because I could take orders, which is weird for a drug addict right. um, or an alcoholic. But I could follow orders and, and do what they wanted me to do. And so I excelled quickly in the military. I found that um, as I looked through this later on when I was doing some step work, that a lot of the reasons I did those things was because, again, I wanted attention. If I could excel to the top, the cream of the crop, mm-hmm. where everybody looked at me, I got my rank faster and people thought I was much better than what I was. Mm-hmm. But inside, I was still dying. I would still come back home on the weekends and see um, those old friends. And one of those old friends was an old high school sweetheart. And she, uh, we, we got to seeing each other. She became pregnant and we became married. You know, that, that's what, what you got to do as a man. Oh, yeah. that's, what, that's what we were taught growing up. That's what I, that's what I thought. Yeah. You, know, um, you got to make it right. Yeah, I mean, it didn't have nothing to do with Jesus or any of these things that, that I talk about today. It was strictly I needed to do my manly duty of being a man, stepped up at the plate, and raise your child. And so we got married, and she moved in with us, or moved in with me uh, at Fort Benning, Georgia. And we 
we raised this child together. And it was a just a horrible marriage uh, from both sides. It wasn't just her. We, we fought, we cussed, uh, we had affairs on each other. It was everything a bad marriage would have in it. And through that, I just began thinking that my child wasn't mine. And this was three years down the road. And a lot of people say, no, you're just trying to get out of your responsibilities and this and that. And a lot, to, be, to be honest, I was taking psychology in school then. And at that point, I don't remember the, the, the specifics here, but me and the, the ex-wife now, um, we both had blue eyes. And our child, I think, maybe had brown eyes. And genetically speaking, that was impossible. Oh, uh, yeah. And so I said, there's just no way. And so that was the, the tipping of the scales for me to say, I want a paternity test done. When we did that, I, I bet waited. that went over like a lead balloon. You know, I, I don't know if, she, I, to this day, I don't know if she really knew or not, but it wasn't as hard as you thought, hmm. you'd think. It didn't go over well, of course, right. but it was not like drawing a line in the sands like I will not do it. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's like we argued for a while, but we argued about everything. Oh. So it didn't really matter. Yeah. You know, for a, a lead balloon to come flying in was just kind of normal <laughs> okay. at that point. <laughs> and I got the results from that paternity test and it told me that there was like a ninety nine point seven or ninety nine point nine percent chance that this child was not mine, that I just was not the father. And for a guy like me raising this child and and, and and I actually named him. There's a lot of story there, backstory that I, I wrote in my book that I'll spare you the details right now. But it really played a part into me that, again, that God just didn't care for me. God did not love me. And if God did love me, why would he allow this to happen? Why would he let my heart be broken in such a way? And I didn't look at my side of that, any of the, you know, the steps that, that I did that led me to this. You know, I was the one having sex outside of marriage that led into this pregnancy. Uh, so I thought, you know, come to find out he, he was not mine, so it, didn't, it wasn't the sex, the red, my sex that led to the pregnancy, right. if you will. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, but we were having sex outside of pregnancy, I mean, outside of marriage. And it was it was a difficult time in my life right then because I kind of just fell apart as a man, as a human. I just gave up. Was that when you know your addiction was already going strong, and then that was just when like the kerosene just got thrown on? Yes and no. Um, I don't really know how the best way to say that because the crazy thing that happened for me was when I went in the military, you can't do drugs, right? You will get caught. There's random drug tests everywhere. And it's not like you can go in there and strap on some urine to your leg from somebody else doing it or all the little ways that we've used to get past with those. I mean, you're standing there in front of other men who are just physically watching you. Right, yeah. And um, so drugs was just, there's no way. But me being, the reason I say in CR today that I struggle with addictive behaviors. I just completely swapped away from drugs and went to alcohol because that wasn't frowned on. I wasn't of age, but I could get it, and really there wasn't a whole lot of consequences there. And so there was this this giving up. It was fueled. I was drinking heavily then. I was drinking alcoholically then, but it, it still was time to get worse. 
When that happened, though, what I did was when I gave up, I said, I don't care anymore. And I went um, and I started smoking pot and I started doing other drugs because I just didn't care the consequences anymore. In fact, I, I so much so is I went to my commanding officer and said, look, I want out of the military. And he laughed at me. He said, Roger, you just don't leave the military. This ain't your nine to five <laughs> job. You don't just get out, son. Yeah. And um, I forgot what rank I was. He, he referred to me as sergeant or private or whatever I was then. And um, I was like, but I, I'm done. This is what happened. I want out. And he's like, no, you don't get out that way. I was like, but if I fail a drug test, I can get out, can I? And he said, well, I'd have to put you out then. And I literally went and started smoking pot after that to get kicked out of the military. Wow. And I went home that weekend and smoked. I don't remember how much it was, an ounce or something. It was plenty enough to fail a urinalysis. And I went back and I walked into my commander's, commander's office and I said, all right, drug test me. It's time to get out of the military. <laughs> I had the test done, and it came back negative. Oh. It literally came back negative. All those times I've always Man. wanted to pass one for a good job. You couldn't. And this one, you know, come back negative. But after I lost, um, well, didn't lose the child, I, I chose to, to leave um, the child and the wife at that point because I just kind of gave up. I was hurt, uh, resentful through the whole thing, and I began just smoking pot, drinking, and staying at strip clubs every night. Uh, I was known at all the strip clubs. And most of the nights, the strippers were back at my house. And on one of those nights, we had gotten really drunk the night before. I'd woke up smoking pot, trying to take the edge off. I went to work like I had done hundreds of thousands of times before. And I was an instructor at Fort Benning, Georgia. I taught basic trainees how to fire a mortar system, which is essentially a, a big cannon that shoots upright. And um, we were we were teaching them how to use this mortar system, getting ready to send them off to um, Afghanistan at that time. And we, we, we looked, there's a 35 pound bomb that you sit inside of this cannon. And as you drop it, it slides down this tube. And when it hits the bottom of firing pin, it shoots back out. And that's what we expected to happen this time. And when we stuck it in and it slid down the barrel, it was just like a toot toot, just nothing. Just, you could hear the dud. And it was a misfire. It just didn't shoot out like it was supposed to. And so there was proper protocol there to, to take it back out. And we were we were taking this round out the second time, uh, me and another guy, because with it being 35 pounds, it took two of you to do it. We got it about halfway up that tube in a split second. I mean, like in an instant, my life changed forever. Because as we were pulling it up, it slipped off the, the fuse or the clamp, if you will. And when it slid down the second time and hit the firing pin, it shot out. And my hand was across the top of that cannon. It shot through my hand. It singed my eyes shut and blew out both of my eardrums. And it happened so quick, I didn't really know what had happened. Because when, when I say loud, I mean extremely loud. Like your, your whole body vibrates from the shake from one of these. Uh, you could probably feel it from miles away. It's that type of explosion when they go off. And um, as it exited and, and did all this damage to myself, I was right-handed at the time. I reached up with my right hand to try to, to break my eyes open because, like I said, they were singed together from the flame that shoots out the end of this, this cannon. And I couldn't do it, and it just felt wrong. And so I reached up with my left hand, and I broke my eyes open enough to see that my thumb was literally dangling, uh, just dangling from my, my, my hand or my arm and that the rest of my hand had been blown off. And, 
I kind of fell down there in that moment. And it was kind of a surreal moment because I couldn't really hear good. Everything was muffled, but I could hear. And I kept hearing words like tourniquet and medevac. And those were bad words mm. from my training. I knew that this was really bad. And there really wasn't a whole lot of pain at that point. But I laid there in a pool of my own blood. And, you know, this is that that moment where you kind of go, what, what was you thinking about, Roger? At this near-death experience, what happened? And this is that moment I always said that I would say this prayer. And I would get this prayer out of my mouth, right, that, that those teachers and yeah. Bible school teachers and preachers that said, just say the prayer before you die and you'll make it to heaven. Yeah. And this was it. I mean, I really thought I was dying. I could really feel my energy leaving my body. And I, I guess that was blood loss. I don't know if I was going into um, shock, shock or, or whatever it was. But I, this was the moment I could say the prayer. And I didn't think of anything in that moment. It was It was just like peaceful and just as clear as my mind has ever been. You'd think it would be pure chaos. And it was none of those things. But I didn't think of the prayer, and I didn't think about Jesus in them last moments. Well, as you can see me sitting here talking to you today, I didn't die through that. The doctors thought that I probably could through it, and by the grace of God, I made it through those things. But what I found was I was at home with no wife, no job, no kid, and no hand, and just completely... uh, just desperate to find happiness again. I, I felt like I'd lost it all. And this, as you mentioned earlier about what happened, um, was it like putting kerosene on the fire? Yeah. This was that moment for me. So you would definitely say that this is probably your bottom. This was as close to a bottom as I think I could ever get. Um, I, I guess. Yeah. I, I keep leaving you hanging with this, I guess, because... <laughs> What happened in those this this one year kind of would would be considered my bottom for me yeah, the okay. year that I came home because I, I began getting pills from any doctor I wanted because you walk in as a army veteran and you go look I, I lost my, my my hand for our country and they said sir what what kind of pills do you need right I mean that oh, yeah. literally whatever I needed they I could, would just yeah. give to me and I, so I was kind of prescribing myself just a doctor letting me. And then it became became to the point where I it wasn't enough to keep me high enough long enough, and I started shooting up, and that was the thing I said I just would never do. And there was a lot of things I said I would never do, and that was the one that just kind of was the the peak of the pinnacle that I mm-hmm. said it would just never get any worse than this. And there was just this hole in my soul I never could fill, and it always kept getting worse. And we began writing prescriptions. Come to find out in the state of Alabama, you do have to go uh, to college and get a degree to (laughs) write your own prescriptions. Yeah, Yeah, they frown on that. (laughs) (laughs) They do, because they will charge you with a felony uh, when you get caught doing that, because that's what happened to me. And uh, that was kind of my moment, not in that moment, but a a few months after that, I said, I got to get well, I got to get better. Mm. And I didn't know anything about anything in recovery other than I'd been to rehab once when I was a teenager, like we talked about earlier. At that point, I was not as bad as those people. But now I felt like I was worse than those people. And so this is where I saw my bottom. I talked to a rehab here locally, and they took me in. Thankfully, I had some insurance to help me get in because 
many of the guys I work with today, that's not their story. They don't have insurance. It's a struggle to go in to an inpatient facility. And I made it there for 17 days. They uh, began drilling into me these 12 steps. But it was one day while I was there, my mom came to see me on visitation. And again, me being mama's boy, this was the moment I'd been waiting for. I'd been locked up all by myself, the other guys, and I was good to see family to know that I was loved again. And when I saw her, I could see something was wrong with her. And she she came and she handed me some papers. And it was actually the charges for writing those fake prescriptions from the state of Alabama saying I was getting charged with felony offenses. Because at that point, I didn't know really what was going on. Yeah, that's that's not great news to receive while you're in rehab. It's not at all because... You know, we talk about step one being powerless, and and I thought I was until I got that news, and I realized that I really am. Yeah. You know, it's it's one thing to have some head knowledge; it's another to just realize I I can't do nothing about this now. Hmm. I went back to my room there in rehab, and I fell down to my knees, and it was just like a desperate, just weeping, crying. Like I I didn't know what else to do. My my life was I was powerless. My life had become unmanageable. And I cried out to Jesus that day, and I didn't say, you know, say this prayer after me or any of those things. It was just a desperate cry from my heart. I don't remember my exact words. I can sum it up. It was like, you know, Lord, I just, I'm tired of living this way, and will you help me live a different way? And mm-hmm. and I want to follow you from here on out. Yeah. And that was my my cry from my heart, and I meant that. And from that point on, my life began to change a little bit. It was slow, but it it began changing for the better. I made it out of rehab, even though I kind of thought I could fix myself still. I had this willpower thing that I just knew that I could man up through this thing and get better, although it never worked before. (laughs) I got out. out, I started going to AA meetings for the first time. That's actually where I met you in some of those AA meetings. And... Things got better for me inside AA. Uh, I worked through these steps that we talk about a lot in our podcast. I found out that I was carrying tons of baggage from the past and um, that really drugs and alcohol were just a symptom of a much bigger problem. And it was my my insecurities that I had with myself, my self-esteem issues, uh, and the needing to always be the center of attention. Those were a lot of my issues that I had to deal with and realize that I'm okay just to be by myself. It was hard to learn how to live by myself. And to be quite honest, I didn't even do a good job at that because I met my wife in AA like <laughs> six months sober. I think she was just a few weeks sober. I picked her up off a relapse. <laughs> and I guess that may be the reason I found her. And um, that's the only way she would take me because she's still a little hazy from the drugs she was using. <laughs> but she was literally living in Walmart's parking lot when I met her. Wow. And, um, you know, I, we're kind of the exception to the norm. Oh, yeah. We've still been married all these years, 15 years, and she's really just been a blessing in my life of all the things she's done um, in my life to help strengthen and encourage me. But I do believe that the steps taught me a lot of different things and continue to teach me a lot of things. And they taught me spiritual principles. And we were sitting there with my wife inside of her uh, parents' house one day, and they—they they are Christians and still are Christians, strong believers, uh, faithful believers, and um, 
they they would talk to us about our son Matthew, which is my stepson, and um, they would say, "Well, where y'all going to church at now?" And we would go, well, "We're not going to church. We go to AA. AA right. is where we go." Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, we're we're good spiritually. Yeah, I believe in Jesus, but we're not doing doing the church. And one of them asked me, "Well, where's Matthew getting his spirituality from?" Mm. And it leveled me, uh, yeah. dude. It, it really it leveled me. I didn't have an answer for that because here we are getting better and growing, but he was getting nothing. We were setting him up to become worse than us. Yeah, and I don't know if you're like me, but like at, w- earlier on in my recovery, it was so easy to get to a level of growth and just stop. And just go, okay, I'm not doing drugs anymore. I'm good now, you know? That's exactly what it was like. Um, you know, that, that old saying, if you're not going uh, forwards, you're going backwards. Yeah. We did, you know, I, I still believe that today, but it was okay just to be in the middle sometimes, mm-hmm. or I felt like it was. And that spurred something in me that I felt like I needed to start finding a church. And we, we, we literally drove around one day in. Again, I didn't. I wasn't raised in church. I was a holiday <laughs> Christian. I didn't know how to do this church thing. We rode around one Saturday. Maybe it was a Sunday because I was probably scared to go to church because I still felt like y'all church people were judgmental, hypocrites. You know, y'all were like riding around like scoping we out shop- churches. We were church shopping. <laughs> we were like riding up the front door, seeing what the times of service was, <laughs> looking what they was dressing like, and all this. Doing recon <laughs> on the church, <laughs> doing drive-bys. Yeah. You know what? Check these folks out. And um, we we picked one church and we went and when we were there, this guy was on stage preaching barefooted, uh, not because it was like holy, you know, people could take that like oh, you know, take holy the scripture. Yeah. Uh, now it's none of those things. He was just lazy and didn't want to put his shoes on. It was the youth pastor filling mm-hmm. in that day, but it spoke volumes to me. It's what it said to me. He didn't say these words, but come as you are. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I, I found Jesus. It's just the way I was, broken and burdened. And he he met me there. And so we found our church home that way. Through the process, my wife has said she was always saved. And one one Sunday, she went like running down to the altar to get saved. And she said, yeah, I've been living a lie all these years. Through that process, uh, she did a video um, testimony for a baptism when she got baptized. And the pastor asked us if we'd ever heard of Celebrate Recovery. We had never heard of it. We were AA junkies, man. That's all we did, good AA meetings. And um, we learned that we could, about this Celebrate Recovery thing, and we went to a conference, and we learned about it, and we realized it was the same steps that we've been doing in AA, except they backed it with spiritual principles. And we see it out of Matthew 5 and all of all the scripture we see there in the Beatitudes, and I was like, man, this is cool. I can now oh, yeah. take my faith and my recovery and put them together. And that's kind of started my walk here for the past, well, like I said earlier, 15 years. April the 30th of 2004 is my sobriety date. And the majority of that has now been in in CR. Is I've had the opportunity to serve as a state rep here in Alabama for about five years. Uh, we, we started our first CR meeting there at Calvary Baptist Church. And we've stayed there for about five years, and now we're at Grace Life Baptist Church, and we've been there for about three, and yeah, that's kind of my ministry now. That's what I do, and it's not so much about what I can do for others, which is usually kind of what I, I think of when I see people talk about pastors, about preaching to their congregations. 
I see more so about me being in recovery for me and uh, as a byproduct, I get to help other people. Right. Yeah. And I, I remember something that uh, one of my sponsors a long time ago told me, and it still rings true even today for me, is about staying in the middle. You know, stay in the middle of the pack. Don't be on the fringes. And so, you know, I, I do love being able to help other people, but I'm also there for myself, too. You know, so I, I like to stay connected and stay in the middle um, because I know that I can easily justify myself in a hundred different ways, you know, to, to either quit coming or to think I don't need it anymore. You know, I know, I know a lot of people go down that road of, of going, well, you know, I'm okay now, so I don't need to go to these meetings anymore. Well, the crazy thing for me is 15 years. I mean, that's just unheard of in my life to, to, to start with. That's the reason I say at the beginning, I feel like I'm talking about a stranger because it's been 15 years since I've used drugs or alcohol. But what I have not learned in 15 years is how to apply these principles daily. Right. I just haven't. I still find out that I have shortcomings and, and issues in my life. I still rely more on money than God. Uh, I still struggle with the same tendencies that got me to using drugs in the beginning of that self-centeredness of wanting um, it to be all about me and not about Christ. And as Christians, you know, we're supposed to just rely on Jesus. Yeah, That's so easy to say, but so hard to do. And maybe I've been doing this whole Christian thing wrong for 15 years. But for me, it just has not worked that way. And what Celebrate Recovery has done for me is it's a daily reminder that I've got to give up my power, my will to Christ. And it gives me some some framework to do that with right and the the 12 steps you know i i almost see it as a as a discipleship model really and what you were talking about i've never really you know you said you've never really been able to apply these steps perfectly and uh you know i don't think that we'll ever be able to do that because as christians we're we're constantly growing in our faith um the church word is you know being sanctified or, or, or sanctification and as long as we're you know on this side of eternity it'll always be a struggle and uh but that's why i like you know having the framework of the 12 steps and the toolkit tool that comes with it uh what what is your favorite step of the 12 steps for me, I, the the twelfth step would definitely have to be my favorite to actually do now, and because that's where I actually get to to work with other people, to serve and give back. I think that's really the model that Jesus laid out. You know, as he served others, as he washed the feet of the disciples, uh, he came and he gave, and that's what I want to do today. Now, there's some days I don't feel like doing that. That still didn't make it my favorite. Um, step to do is I, I love giving back and it, when I found that the more I give back the less I think about me and the less I think about me the more I think about others and when I'm thinking about others I'm thinking about what, what the Lord's done for me mm. and that's what service gives me and in the beginning I remember at AA uh, some of the very basics would be like uh, making coffee or cleaning up ashtrays because where we were at, you could smoke inside there. <laughs> yeah. And I, I remember thinking, I don't even drink coffee. At that time, I didn't. Now I drink it all the time. But yeah. at that time, I didn't drink coffee. Like, why I got to clean up? Why I got to make coffee for somebody else when I don't even drink it? 
And that was early in my recovery. I didn't understand that that was still service. Even at our Celebrate Recovery that we do now, one of the things that nobody ever wants to do is take out the trash at the end of the night. Well, that's still service. It's, we always think of service as like, oh, I've got to get in and sponsor somebody. Oh, I've got to get mm-hmm. out and, and teach a lesson. Oh, I've got to get out and be center of attention. And sometimes the best service is the service we do behind the scenes that nobody else sees. And that that's what I love about step work. And that's the reason it's my favorite step. Yeah. But I do know this, that... Um, I haven't arrived yet. I haven't figured out how to make all these things work. And um, I'm okay with that today. I used to be really hard on myself and think that I had to have all this perfect. And I would struggle because I wasn't perfect. And today I do know that my identity doesn't come from what I do or how well I do it. It It comes from who I am in Christ. And the days I forget that is the days I struggle more than others. And by working through these steps, I get back to that foundational truth of that I can't, he can, and I'm going to let him. And for those reasons, I'll still be sticking around here, and I'll still be doing 12 Steps meetings with you, and we'll keep doing this podcast together until Jesus comes home. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like you were saying, I I used to think this would be something I could graduate, you know, uh, when I first came in AA, I saw the book, and I was like, that's like a semester-type book, you know? I'll just read that, and then I'll be good. Um, but anybody who's been in recovery for any amount of time know, you know that those tendencies will always be there. And if it's not those tendencies, then it could be something else, too. Because um, I, too, have addictive behaviors, not just with drugs and alcohol. And that's why, um, you know, the 12 steps of, of Celebrate Recovery is so great. It, it's open to all kind of addictions, not just drugs and alcohol like we heard from Roger today, but food addiction, pornography, uh, grief, uh, you know, resentments, in any of those type of, of things, of hurts, habits, and hangups, you can find healing and hope in Jesus Christ uh, through working those 12 steps. Well, we hope you have enjoyed Roger's testimony and how he turned his mess into a message. And if you would like to read more of Roger's story, you can purchase his book, Soberholic, 12 Steps Later, on Amazon. Um, it's a great gift to give somebody who's struggling, um, a family member, a co-worker, or a friend. So pick that up. And uh, we want to say thank you for listening to us, and we want to ask you to please subscribe to our podcast so you can get all the updates of each episode that we will post every week. And you can also reach us at Soberholic Podcast, at Soberholic Podcast, one word, at gmail.com. Please send us a message. You can send us show ideas. Uh, show topics, or you can you can disagree with us on something. You can uh, just any kind of feedback. We love to hear from you, or or how this podcast is helping you. And that's soberholicpodcast at gmail dot com. Well, I think that wraps us up today, and we want to say thank you. And I'm Jason. I'm Roger. And we're signing off.